So um, there's a new trend. I don't know if you're aware of this. You may or may not be aware of this. But this is the new trend. This is what I'm going to show you. Have you seen this? So people are not satisfied with Christmas trees as they grow out of the ground uh, in the normal way. So there's a new trend this year, which is putting your Christmas tree upside down. Uh, they're even selling them like this at Home Depot. So you can buy them um, like, a, like a triangle from, from Home Depot. There's hotels, there's restaurants. This is actually happening apparently all over the country. ABC News read an article on it. And this is the new trend. Maybe you're into this. Maybe you have flipped your tree upside down. Uh, there's no judgment. If you want to do that, that's great. I'm more of a, a normal tree guy. Um, that's my style. But the reason that this is becoming a trend, I guess, is because, you know, it's different, and anything that's different typically becomes a trend. Uh, I'm pretty sure that all of us right here could start a trend if we wanted. We say this week we're going to go out and we're all going to wear hats, but we're not going to wear hats. We're going to wear baskets on our heads, and eventually people are going to be like, "Man, what kind of you know basket is that? Sycamore? Is it zebra wood? You know, like we could start a trend just by wearing a nice wood basket on your head because it's different. Therefore, it's cool. I think that's one of the reasons that this is a trend. But the other one, and I've been reading about this is that the reason that people are flipping their trees upside down in hotels as well is because it creates a feeling of whimsy. Don't ever use that word. I uh, barely know what it is. I looked it up on dictionary.com. But it creates this feeling of whimsy. It's whimsical, right? It brings this sense of happiness. I mean, it's hilarious to look at. You know, someone walks in your house and they start laughing. They think maybe you're insane or, you know, maybe it's just whimsical. And so people are doing this, right? They're flipping their their trees upside down, because this is something that happens during the Christmas season. We want to experience joy. We want to experience happiness. We want to experience whimsy, if you use that word. And one of the things I know is true is this. We do all these different things to create and to manufacture this sense of joy. And they're good things, right? Decorating our house outside and inside with the lights. We, we wear ugly Christmas sweaters and we go to parties. We, we make cookies, we exchange gifts, and it brings this feeling of happiness and positive emotions. These are all really good things. Maybe you flip your tree upside down, I don't know. But here's the truth. You can manufacture happiness. 100% you can manufacture happiness because it's an emotion, but you cannot manufacture joy. And we try. We really try hard to manufacture joy, but you can't. Because joy is your soul's disposition, it's not something that you can create or it's not something that you can manufacture by flipping your tree upside down or hanging lights on your house or exchanging gifts. You can feel happiness but not joy. And tonight as we continue our series that we started last week uh, called the Songs of Advent, as we march all the way to Christmas Eve, as we wait and as we prepare and as we are reminded that love and joy and peace and hope has come some 2,000 years ago in a manger. And as we listen to these songs that are sung about this day, and last week we looked at Zechariah and his song of hope, and, and tonight we're looking at Elizabeth, who's Zechariah's wife, and it's her song that's a song of love. But this is really important. This week and next week, we're going to be talking about love and joy because they go hand in hand. And so tonight you're going to hear a lot about love and a lot about joy, and next week you're going to hear a lot about joy and a lot about love because they go together. You see, joy is found in response to love. When you experience real, true, powerful love, it creates in you a sense of joy. 
You've probably experienced this before in love between family members, love between your spouse, love between uh, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, love between a parent to a child. When you experience love, when someone shows you love, it creates a sense of joy in you. And so one of the questions I've had this week, we sent out this email on Monday that shares the passage of the week so you can spend time reading scripture on your own in personal worship. And I had a couple people ask me why we're doing this series out of chronological order because our minds uh, as Western thinkers are like, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. We started last week near the end of Luke and now you're moving backwards. What's going on? Did you like lose it for a bit when you were doing the sermon series? So the reason that we're doing this, the reason that we're going out of order in the passage with Zechariah's song last week near the end of chapter one of Luke and then this week near the middle with Elizabeth's song is because the way that Luke writes is he's drawing us to see Jesus in Luke chapter 2, which we're going to talk about the Sunday before Advent. And then on, on Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at Christ himself and his birth. And so as we're looking at it and as we're kind of thinking about how Luke has written, because Eastern writers and Eastern thinkers don't always put things in chronological order for order of importance, we felt that the text was leading us to say, let's look at Zechariah's song first, and then next his wife, Elizabeth, tonight, and then the mother of Jesus, and then the angels who are going to sing a song of peace at the birth of Christ. And then lastly, on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at Jesus himself. And so tonight we pick up with Elizabeth. And Elizabeth is married to Zechariah, who sang a song last week over his son and over the experience that God has given him this hope of a child. And, and tonight, Elizabeth has this encounter with Mary. And this is what causes her to sing. And so we're going to pick up in verse 39. You can follow with me. Here's what it says. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. Now this is one of those verses where when you're spending time reading the Bible on your own or as Yamil was reading it, it's just, it kind of, you run right past it. It seems very basic, right? Okay, Mary, she got up and she left very quickly and she went to this hill country in Judah. But this verse is very, very peculiar. Here's why. So Mary currently is pregnant, and she's engaged. And for her to leave home would have been very abnormal. So first off, she's about 14 years old, and she's pregnant, and she's been shamed, right? She, her reputation has been destroyed because she's been telling people that she didn't engage in, in sexual acts with Joseph, who she's engaged to yet. That was culturally not acceptable at all and, and against God's law. And she's saying, it's not me. God has given me a child. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, okay. God's given you a child, right? So she's publicly been shamed, but she's also engaged. And what would happen during this time period is that when a man and woman would come together to be engaged, the woman would be secluded in her home until the wedding day. Right? You're like, what? This is what happened. So she would stay secluded in her home. And what it created was this sense of anticipation to the wedding day. To where on the wedding day, the woman would leave her home and she would go into the bridal chamber where the man and woman would see each other for the first time in a long time. And then they would consummate their marriage. It's beautiful and intimate and really special dynamic moment. And so she's engaged. She's supposed to be secluded. She's also pregnant. She probably shouldn't be traveling. And she travels here 70 miles by herself from Nazareth down to the mountains of Judah overlooking Jerusalem. So this is very peculiar, and we're never told why. We're not told why she leaves with haste. It's like she gets up and she leaves by herself. You know, as you're reading this 
this story and you're reading this text and you're looking at Luke and you're asking yourself, what is Luke doing, right? Every word in scripture means something. It's purposeful. Why is he writing this? Why is he telling you this? Well, Elizabeth here is foreshadowing, or Mary here is foreshadowing another journey, right? She's carrying Jesus Christ currently, and she's pregnant, and she leaves Nazareth in the Sea of Galilee region, and she goes 70 miles to the mountains overlooking Jerusalem. And this is a foreshadow of the same journey that her child will take, right? Jesus, who is going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's going to be raised in Nazareth. He's going to spend most of his life in this region. He's going to come out and and begin his public ministry at about age 30. And he's going to do most of his public ministry around the Nazareth Sea of Galilee region. And then it says this, that Jesus, in Luke 9, verse 51, it says that Jesus then turned his face towards Jerusalem. And he starts walking from the Sea of Galilee region to Jerusalem. And he goes over the hills and he comes to Jerusalem, not simply just to visit relatives, which is what it seems like Mary is doing. She's leaving to come to visit her relative Elizabeth here. But he comes to to save his family, to save his friends. He's going to march to Jerusalem to display love. And so Mary here is foreshadowing this journey. Jesus is taking this journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem before he's even born. And then some 33 years later or so, he's going to make it himself, which is what we celebrate on Easter when he arrives in Jerusalem and He is tried and and killed and buried and comes forth victorious on the third day. And so Mary gets there. She gets to Elizabeth's house and Zechariah's house in the mountains overlooking Jerusalem. They don't know she's coming. There's no Twitter. There's no text messages. There's no email. There's no car. She's walked. She shows up. She knocks on the door. And here's what happens. Verse 40, she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Again, you have to stop, okay? So Mary, 14 years old, pregnant, has totally been shunned in her community. She is leaving Nazareth. She shows up. She knocks on their door. They're not expecting her, and they greet her. Now, Mary is no one. She is engaged to a carpenter. She comes from Nazareth, which there was a saying back then that nothing good comes out of Nazareth. So she comes from a town that doesn't matter. She doesn't matter. She's young, and she knocks on Elizabeth and Zechariah's door, who matter greatly culturally. Zechariah is a priest, and his wife as well, they are both esteemed in this culture. They were regarded with honor. They are superior culturally to many other people, especially to Mary. And they're older. They're elderly. We, we read about how the, the child that Elizabeth is carrying currently, which is John the Baptist, was a miracle as well. Because Elizabeth had been barren her whole life and Zechariah and Elizabeth had been praying for a child and God answers their prayers So they are culturally superior to Mary, and Mary knocks on the door, and they open the door. And you can imagine what is supposed to take place, right? Here's what's supposed to take place. Mary is supposed to look at Elizabeth and Zechariah and begin to declare honor over them, to praise them, maybe to bow. But here's what happens. This is where everything changes in the passage. It says in verse 41... That when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She hears a knock on the door, and she opens the door, and it's Mary. And her child, Elizabeth, her child, John the Baptist, leaps. We're told that he was filled with the Holy Spirit even before he was born. He leaps at this encounter with 
not simply Mary, but with the child that Mary is carrying. And then she responds with a loud cry of joy. Here's what it says in verse 42. She looks at Mary, and this is completely backwards. She says, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. See, this, this blessing and this honor was supposed to be given from Mary to Elizabeth, but instead, when she opens the door and she sees Mary, she looks and she says, blessed are you, Mary, and blessed is the child that you're carrying. You see, Mary is an exceptional woman. She truly is an exceptional woman. And she's deserving of honor. I mean, Mary trusts in God from the very moment when God comes to her. And she declares that she's going to be a servant. And we don't know why she leaves Nazareth to go to the hill country of Judah to see Elizabeth. But we have to trust that she's following after God's guidance and leadership. Because she constantly, time and time again, is following God's will. She is deserving of honor. It's important to recognize, though, she's not deserving of worship. But she's deserving of honor. Because worship is reserved for God. And Elizabeth here looks at Mary, who is way younger than her, and does not matter culturally, and she says, blessed are you, Mary. I mean, you are deserving of honor. But you are deserving of honor not simply because you're an exceptional woman and because you have such strong faith, but you are are deserving of honor because you are carrying the blessed one in your womb. The one that you are carrying is the one who has created all blessings and is in and of himself a blessing. And then she says this as she's declaring this honor in verse 43. It's my favorite verse in this passage. She says, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Imagine that scene. Elizabeth is older, deserving of all praise and honor. And it's as if she's like bending before this 14-year-old Mary, and she's saying, blessed are you, Mary, and blessed is the one that you are carrying. And who am I to have this encounter with you? Who am I to have this experience? Who am I to be, I mean, I'm not deserving of this. You see, here's something that's very true. All pride and all status and all cultural conventions and all ego fall away when you come before Christ every time. And this is what's happening. All of that status, all of those cultural conventions of her superiority, all of her ego, all of her pride that's maybe built up because she knows that she's a big deal in the city, that all falls away when she comes before Mary and the child that Mary is carrying. And she says that, who am I that the mother of my Lord should come to me? See, when you read this on the surface, it looks like she's saying, who am I to be around you, Mary? There's a sense, right, of honor of that she's bestowing to Mary. But really what the focus here is like, who am I to be around the presence of my Lord, the presence of God, the child that you are carrying, which is the son of the most high, the king of kings. This word Lord that she uses here, is really important. It's a word that means master often. It has to do with God. It's a word for God. It means the supreme one, the master, the one who's in control of all things. And Elizabeth already knows this. She already believes this. She already trusts that God is Lord because she's been praying her whole life for a child, and so has her husband. And now God has answered her prayers, and she has a child, though she was barren. And she's way past the years that she should be able to carry a child. She knows God is in control of all things. She knows God is powerful and strong. But the word Lord here doesn't only mean master in regards to God. It also means husband. 
Because what's happening here and what she's saying is not simply that she is astounded that the fact that she has given this encounter with God who is master and who is strong and who is powerful, but that she is encountering God on this level of intimacy and love. God who is like a husband and it overwhelms her. Her, the baby inside of her leaps for joy, who is John the Baptist, the very one that's going to prepare the way for Christ. And she is overcome to where she exclaims with a loud cry this joy and this blessing. There's a, a parable. It's a beautiful, wonderful parable. I'm about to play a video, so get ready. It's by Soren Kierkegaard, who is a, a philosopher. It's called The King and the Maiden. And this parable, Soren Kierkegaard talks about the reality of who God is. And here's what he says. He says that God is a king and he is deserving of worship and honor and praise because he is in control of all things because he's created all things, but yet God did not come to us like that. He didn't come demanding our praise. He comes humble, like a husband, like one of us, which is the Christmas story. I wanna play this little clip that speaks about this parable. And I want you to think as you watch this, that this is the Christmas story. This is who God is and this is what we claim to believe about God. And like Mary, if you believe this, what should be your response if you have experienced this love of God? So take a look at this short video. Suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. The king was like no other king. Every statesman trembled before his power. No one dared breathe a word against him, for he had the strength to crush all opponents. And yet this mighty king was melted by love for a humble maiden. How could he declare his love for her? In an odd sort of way, his very kingliness tied his hands. If he brought her to the palace and crowned her head with jewels and clothed her body in royal robes, she would surely not resist. No one dared resist him. But would she love him? She would say she loved him, of course, but would she truly? Or would she live with him in fear, nursing a private grief for the life she had left behind? Would she be happy at his side? How could he know? If he rode to her forest cottage in his royal carriage, with an armed escort waving bright banners, that too would overwhelm her. He did not want a cringing subject. He wanted a lover, an equal. He wanted her to forget that he was a king and she was a humble maiden, and to let shared love cross over the gulf between them. For it is only in love that the unequal can be made equal. The king, convinced he could not elevate the maiden without crushing her freedom, resolved to descend. He clothed himself as a common man and approached her cottage with a worn cloak fluttering loosely about him. It was not just a disguise. The king took on a whole new identity. He renounced the throne to declare his love and to win mine. That's the Christmas story. That's what we celebrate here. 
that God, who is king and creator of all things, could certainly demand our worship, could certainly demand service, could demand praise. He could have been born in a palace with servants and subjects and demanded that you recognize and that you surrender and that you serve and you bring offerings and do all the things that were typical of a king, even more so because he's the king of kings. But he didn't come like that. He didn't arrive with strength and power and demanding of your worship and your praise. Instead, what we celebrate during the Christmas season and the Christmas story is that God descended and he laid aside all of his royalty and all the things that are recognizable about his strength and his power as Lord over all. And he came as a child to marry this 14-year-old woman and her husband Joseph and he was born in in a cave with animals around him and no one even really knew except for a few people and he grows up for the first 30 years of his life and nobody really knows and then he begins this ministry of revealing the fact that he is God in the flesh and after he begins to speak about the kingdom of God and the reality of who God is and his love and his forgiveness, he begins to march just like Mary did, leaving Nazareth, and he sets his face to Jerusalem, and he comes to Jerusalem, and he wins the love of those that will follow and worship after him by serving and sacrificing his life for us. This is the Christmas story. This is who God is. And this is what is happening in this story as Elizabeth is overcome with the reality that she is standing before the presence of God. She is witnessing the fact that God has descended to earth. She knows God is king and worthy of praise and could demand everything from her, and she's seen God show up in her life in amazing and miraculous ways, but now she's standing before God, and she is overcome with gratitude, and she is overcome with joy. She keeps repeating this word time and time again, and the word is blessed. She says, blessed are you, Mary, right? It's the first thing that she says. She's saying, blessed are you, Mary, because you are the mother of God in the flesh who has descended. The king has become a man. And then she looks and she says, secondly, blessed is the fruit of your womb. Blessed are you, baby Jesus, who is still unborn at this time because you are the blessed one. And then she changes the way that she speaks. You see, the word blessing is really important. The word blessing means to possess all things necessary for a joyful life. That's what the word blessing means. So next time you do hashtag blessing, think about that. Or hashtag blessed. I think it's, maybe you can use both. I'm not sure. So trying to catch up on it. But blessing means that you have everything necessary for a joyful life. And she's saying, blessed are you, Mary. Blessed is the one that you are carrying. And then she says something very interesting. She flicks, flips how she speaks She changes from second person to third person. And and here's what she says. She says, blessed is she who believed. Doesn't say blessed are you, Mary, for your belief. She says, blessed is she who believes that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Why, Why would Luke change the way that Mary speaks? Because first she's saying, blessed are you, Mary, and blessed is the child that you are carrying. And then she says, blessed is she. See, Luke is wanting you to see something. He's wanting you to see that blessing and joy, this feeling and this sense of gratitude that overcomes Mary and the child that she is carrying to where she cannot stop 
but declare with a loud shout praise for the one that Mary is carrying. It comes by faith. And she is saying, Luke is saying here through Elizabeth as he writes this, he's saying that anyone who is like Mary, blessed is she or blessed is he, blesses anyone who believes that fulfillment comes from the Lord. If you believe that, you're going to find blessing. You're going to find everything necessary for joy in life. And I hope you hear this because as we've talked about tonight and as maybe you're feeling, Christmas can be a time of joy, it can be a time of happiness, but it can be a hard time. It can be a time of pain and difficulty and brokenness. You can begin to think as you recap on your year all the broken dreams and broken expectations that begin to flood your mind. You can think about your broken heart or broken relationships that you're still dealing with and you're praying for restoration and fulfillment. I mean, it can be a time of brokenness. It can be a time of loneliness. It can be a time of pain. It can be a time of suffering. And Elizabeth's song should be a comfort to you. Because she is declaring and she is saying that if you want to find joy, you're not going to be able to manufacture it. You can manufacture happiness but not joy. If you want to find joy and everything necessary for fulfillment in life, then be like Mary. Have faith in the one who is blessed, which is Christ. It's a quote from Sam Storms, his pastor, and I love this quote. He says, Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It's the presence of God. We think about that, right? If, if you're struggling, you're going through something right now, you think to yourself, okay, how am I going to manufacture joy? How am I going to experience joy in my life? I need to get these people out of my life. I need to fix this situation at work. I need this burden, this anxiety, and this stress to be alleviated. And once that goes away and once this goes away, then I'm finally going to experience joy. Not to diminish the suffering and the hardship and the trials that you go through, but even if all of those things are removed, you're still not going to experience joy unless you come to the presence of God. When you come and encounter the presence of God, like Elizabeth, like the child that she's carrying, you will leap with joy. You will shout with joy. If you believe in the blessed one who is Jesus Christ, you will find fulfillment. See, the only appropriate response during Christmas is you think about the Christmas story and and you process what that means for you, the only appropriate response is gratitude and joy. Because God's love is so clearly displayed that he descended for you, that he has come for you, that he is with you, that he has come to rescue you, that he has come to bring joy to you, even when you're dealing with all the things that you're dealing with, you can still find joy in him, in Jesus, when you run to him. The quote I love because there's a way with words. G.K. Chesterton, he says, When we were children, we were grateful to those who filled our stockings at Christmas time. Why are we not grateful to God for filling our stockings with legs? Isn't that great? We're so grateful when someone gives us something. When we, we get that thing that we think is going to make us happy, that gadget, that toy, that relationship, that burden is alleviated. We think it's going to make us happy, and it does make us happy, but it's not going to bring us joy. And G.K. Chesterton is reminding us, why are we not overwhelmed with gratitude when we realize that we have been given God in the flesh at Christmas, who has set his face to Jerusalem to pay the penalty and sacrifice for our sin and our suffering and our debt and our guilt and our shame so that we might come and encounter, like Elizabeth here, does the presence of God because it's available to every single one of us through faith like Mary. So here's my encouragement for myself and for all of us here and my prayer is that during 
the Advent season that three things would be true of you. One, that you would believe the Christmas story. It just wouldn't just be something that you read and something that's just traditional and this, this thing that you do and you remind yourself of, but you don't really believe it. Like God in the flesh, born of a Virgin Mary in a stable. You really believe it because it's true. God has come to rescue you, and that's the story of Christmas. And then secondly, that you encounter God's love through belief. When you believe that, when you begin to play that over in your mind and you think about that, it is going to overwhelm you with joy because you're going to encounter the love of God. And then lastly, that during this season, this time that continually tells you through commercials and advertisement and your friends and your family that you're going to find blessing by things that you're going to get or earn or they're going to be given to you, that you would run to Jesus for blessing who has been granted to you and is accessed simply by faith, simply by trusting in him, not earning it, not working hard for it, but really just trusting in Christ. And I promise you this, when you believe the Christmas story, when you encounter God's love, and when you believe in Jesus and you run to him for blessing, you're gonna find it. You're gonna find fulfillment and everything necessary for joy in life. 100% guarantee. Try it. You will find it. My prayer is that we all remember that and we run to that in this season. Let's pray.